My name is Anne Kennigsmark, and I'm an English teacher, a writer, and a former journalist. And now I am your host for Cocktail Party Takeaways, a podcast for anyone with regrets, but not deep ones, about the books they slept through in high school. I thought it might be nice to ease us into the new year with a short story. However, as anyone who knows me well will tell you, I am not one to make anything emotionally easy. I'm going to begin 2022 with the stuff your grandmother said never to discuss at a dinner party, religion. So let's take a trip down a red dirt road to mid-century Georgia and examine the grotesque and the grace of Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. It may be short, but it packs a murderous and spiritual punch. As I said in the last episode, before I dropped the bomb that Gatsby is Jesus, it's pretty easy to find God in the literary canon. Why is this? Well, writers are truth seekers. They are meaning makers. They are looking for stories to help them make sense of things. They often begin by examining their own worldview, which for many is shaped early on by handed down ideas about a creator, a divinely inspired code of morality, a purpose each of us is meant to somehow discover and live out. I will return to this idea when we delve into life of Pi, but religion is essentially the stories we tell to bring order and meaning to this world and to our lives. We use it to articulate in narrative form this hunch we have that something or someone designed all this. Maybe it's not even a hunch. Maybe it's just a wish, but we will get into that later. I can't remember ever not believing in God. But to be fair, I also can't remember ever not believing that my stuffed animals were real. True confession, I feel a little bad when I take down the Christmas tree and pack the ornaments in tissue and then tuck them in their storage bin. Will the wooden nutcrackers and Santa-hatted sock monkeys be lonely up in the attic? As a little girl, we attended church somewhat regularly, But beyond that, my parents did not speak of God very much. I, however, thought of him often, and I was always casting about for somewhere to hang my spiritual hat. God was personal to me. God, hello, if you can hear me, knock twice. But I didn't have the words or the systems to articulate that and understand it. As a teenager, I attended a Bible study, and I found the intellectual approach to God pleasing. I also discovered I could really feel God in the thunder of an organ and the aching beauty of hymns sung by a boys' choir. So there was a moment in high school where I would hit a church experience three times every Sunday. I would acolyte at our family church in Greenwich Village in the morning. Then I would take the subway to 53rd Street to listen to the boys' choir perform Evensong at St. Thomas Episcopal. And finally, I would attend Bible study back at the first church that night. Since we are friends now, I guess I need to tell you that these Sundays required an alarm clock and a game face. I would have come in from club hopping just an hour or so before dawn. No, my parents were not lenient, just heavy sleepers. It was New York in the 80s. It is a long story. There's a memoir. I promise you'll be the first to know when it gets published. I don't go to church much anymore, but I see God everywhere, particularly in literature. 
I teach in the South at a school with a dose of Christianity in its DNA, so the kids are pretty receptive to my obsession with the strong thread of spirituality I find in the books we read. But as I said in the last episode, they do tease me about it. Georgia native and Southern Gothic writer Flannery O'Connor was deeply spiritual, and her flavor of Christianity was Catholicism, and so she was a bit of an oddity in her setting. She lived a quiet and tragically brief life, born in 1925 and dead at just 39 years old, screaming for being stuck with a debilitating disease, lupus, screaming, as all artists do, for her writing to reveal all that was in her heart, and finally screaming at God to perfect her imperfect faith. Her peacocks were like, lady, shh. Yes, she kept peacocks. I know her faith and her art were inextricably intertwined because she said so in her personal writing. She briefly kept a prayer journal, and in it she wrote, God, give me the grace to adore you, for even this I cannot do for myself. And please help me, dear God, to be a good writer and to get something else accepted. This is so far from what I deserve, of course, that I am naturally struck with the nerve of it. And finally, when I think of all I have to be thankful for, I wonder that you don't just kill me now, because you've done so much for me already, and I haven't been particularly grateful. And she says this, I am afraid of pain, and I suppose that is what we have to have to get grace. At the heart of her stories is a belief that we don't actually want to do the hard work required to get God's grace. And no, she does not mean good works. She means our hearts need to be scraped clean, like a prescribed burn after a harvest. Most of us don't want to feel the kind of pain needed to meet God. Jesus himself said he did not come to bring peace, but instead a sword. God wants you to die on your cross as he did for you. What does that mean exactly? Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest and a writer, often speaks of the death of the false self. Your true self is who you objectively are from the beginning in the mind and heart of God, he says. That sounds pretty amazing until you start to add up all the things you will have to let die to allow that true self to live. That is why O'Connor talks of a disruptive grace, a violent grace. I told you this was going to get real. O'Connor said, I have found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. Their heads are so hard that almost nothing else will work. I went down to to watch the fish swim by But I got to the river So lonesome I wanted to die Oh Lord And then I jumped in the river But the doggone river was dry She's long gone And now I'm lonesome blue The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. This seems like a nothing way to begin a story, but is in fact a little gem of storytelling genius. It immediately introduces a desire, a conflict, 
and the main character, the grandmother. Note, she does not have a name, but instead is identified by her position in a family. And grandmother is such a narrow identifier. A grandmother is also a woman, and presumably a wife or a widow, a daughter, maybe a friend, a sister. But here she is just the grandmother. Without reading another line, I can already see her son or daughter mid-eye roll, can't you? And indeed, her son is unimpressed by her desire not to go to Florida, continuing to read the sports section without even looking up at her. The narrator, who has limited omniscience and tells us only the grandmother's thoughts, explains that she wants to go see relatives in Tennessee instead of the trip her family has planned, and she is seizing on every opportunity to change the family's collective mind. So she finds a little news item in the paper to convince them to make it their own idea not to go. Here's this fellow calls himself the misfit is a loose from the federal pen and headed toward Florida. And you read here what it says he did to those people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that loose in it. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. And that wraps up the first paragraph of A Good Man is Hard to Find. I love the word aloose to signal the grandmother's southern smallness. I love her useless attempt to get her son to read the article. And finally, her super judgy, I would never take my children straight into a killer's territory. Who among us is not now laughing derisively at this grandmother? But here is what is truly ingenious. We are so busy joining the sun in our mild disdain for Granny that we have barely registered the actual conflict she has introduced in paragraph one, that a killer named the misfit is a loose. O'Connor would have made a great mean girl if she'd been born in another time and place. She can be devastating in just a sentence or two. She introduces the, quote, children's mother, again, no name, feeding the baby some apricots out of a jar her face as broad and innocent as a cabbage, and her headkerchief's points sticking up on her head like rabbit's ears. The older children are monsters in two sentences or less. The boy, John Wesley, is fat, bespeckled, and snarky. If you don't want to go to Florida, why don't you just stay at home? His sister, June Starr, joins in. She wouldn't stay home to be queen for a day. She has to go everywhere we go. Nice. When they are ready to go, the grandmother gets in the car with her, quote, big black valise. Inside a basket, she's hiding her cat that she won't leave behind, even though she knows Bailey won't like it. Take a mental note of that big black valise and the cat. So the grandmother is both judgy and sneaky. She is in a traveling outfit, gloves, hat, a spray of violets pinned to her suit, you name it. And she takes note of the mother still in her slacks, and still with her head tied up in that rabbit handkerchief. The grandmother dresses up because, quote, in case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway would know at once that she was a lady. This is some rich irony, class. What is irony? Well, it's not rain on your wedding day. It's when there is some distance between the author's attitude and that of the character. Put another way, it's when you and the author are in on something that the character is not. So in this case, the grandmother thinks that it will reflect well on her to be nicely dressed. But we are like, lady, if you're in an accident, you'll be dead. So why do you... Oh, never mind. 
As the car ride gets underway, it becomes clear that we can also add nostalgic racist to the grandmother's list of faults. Not only does the grandmother represent an older generation that judges the disrespectful outfit choices and sassiness of the younger generations, she is also a booster of and believer in the Old South. You know, fictions about moonlight and magnolias and happy servants toiling away while the masters swirl around in hoop skirts. She keeps trying to tell the children stories and point out scenery, but John Wesley says, Tennessee is just a hillbilly dumping ground, and Georgia is a lousy state too. In my time, says the grandmother, children were more respectful of their native states. She points out an African-American child, quote, standing in the door of a shack and says how cute he is. June Starr observes he is not wearing any pants, and the grandmother says, using a slur, that those children probably don't have any pants, which is evidently why they are so adorable to her and why she would, quote, paint that picture if she could paint. As she is bouncing the baby on her knee, they, quote, passed a large cotton field with five or six graves fenced in the middle of it like a small island. That was the old family burying ground, the grandmother says authoritatively. Go ahead. I will wait while you count how many people are in that car and then wonder if this could be, oh, I don't know, foreshadowing? That belonged to the plantation, the grandmother says. Where's the plantation, the boy asks. Gone with the wind, ha ha. Good one, grandma. So they stopped to eat at a barbecue joint called the Tower, run by, quote, a fat man named Red Sammy Butts. When they first encounter him, he is flat on the ground with his head under a truck while a gray monkey about a foot high, chained to a small chinaberry tree, chattered nearby. Red Sammy is later described as having a stomach that hung and swayed over his waistband like a sack of meal. O'Connor is the master, mistress, of creating grotesque characters. Now you are thinking of the elephant man or some patient slash meal of Dr. Hannibal Lecter's. But in Southern Gothic literature, the genre to which this story belongs, grotesque is a bit more complicated. It is something that lies in the realm between funny and horrifying. O'Connor's stories are populated with grotesques, such as the fraudulent Bible salesman who steals a woman's prosthetic leg, or the guy who breaks into a museum and steals a mummified dwarf. Characters often have a physical defect, a missing limb, or a face, quote, blue with acne, an ear covered in cancer. But also grotesque in O'Connor's writing is her often eerily casual descriptions of violence. Even more remarkable is her ability to make hypocrisy and shallowness appear to be grotesque. So back to Red Sammy Butts. His name, his lying in the dust, his big old belly and that nasty monkey all make him a little bit freak show-esque. Funny and ew. So he sits down at a table near the family and says in a sigh and a yodel, and I can totally hear this in my head, you can't win, you can't win. These days you don't know who to trust. Ain't that the truth? He then humble brags about letting some fellas buy gas on credit and asks, now why did I do that? And the grandmother says, because you're a good man. The grandmother asks Red Sammy 
if he has heard about the misfit, the criminal who escaped the federal prison. This is the first we readers have heard of him since page one. So this little detail, which we might have written off as just a throwaway part of the grandmother's initial characterization, starts to seem more important. He doesn't really respond or react, but he says, A good man is hard to find. Everything is getting terrible. I remember the day you could go off and leave your screen door unlatched. Not no more. Which is kind of funny when you think about it. Like, what difference would a latch make on a screen door? But whatever. Back on the road, they are outside Tombsboro, when the grandmother recalls an old plantation she thinks is nearby. You heard right, Tombsboro. She claims to know exactly which road it's on and how to get there. Suspecting this won't be enough to convince her ornery son, she tries another tack. Quote, there was a secret panel in this house, she said craftily, not telling the truth, but wishing that she were. And the story went that all the family silver was hidden in it when Sherman came through but it was never found. Well, predictably, this sends the kids into a frenzy. We've never seen a secret panel. Can't we go? Dad says no, and the kids raise the stakes, screaming and kicking the seat so hard that the dad can, quote, feel the blows in his kidney. Little darlings, these two. He finally screams, all right. The grandmother says it's on the road they passed about a mile back. A dirt road, Bailey groans. As soon as they turn onto that road, the setting turns ominous in a hurry. The road looks as if no one had traveled on it for months, and there are sudden washes, sharp curves, and dangerous embankments to navigate. The grandmother assures Bailey they are close, and then has a, quote, horrible thought, so embarrassing it makes her leg jump. This upsets the basket with the cat in it. The cat snarls and springs onto Bailey's shoulder. The next line is, the children were thrown to the floor and their mother, clutching the baby, was thrown out the door onto the ground and the old lady was thrown into the front seat. Okay, so they've had a wreck. The car turned over once and landed right side up in a gulch on the side of the road. Bailey is still in his seat with the cat clinging to his neck like a caterpillar. This is terrible, but also like National Lampoon's vacation funny. And then there's this. The grandmother is cowering where she lands, hoping for an injury so she won't incur her son's wrath because, quote, the horrible thought she had had before the accident was that the house she had remembered so vividly was not in Georgia, but in Tennessee. Wow. Again, this is hysterically funny, but we are not really laughing. Bailey sure isn't. He grabs the cat off his neck and hurls it against a pine tree. So there they all are, sitting in a ditch, in shock, their collective teeth chattering, nothing but deep, dark woods all around them, when a car begins to approach, slowly, as if, quote, the occupants were watching them. The grandmother gets up and begins to wave her arms to get their attention, because of course she does. When they can fully see the car, it is, quote, a big, black, battered, hearse-like mobile. There were three men in it. Big, black, battered, hearse-like? This is an example of what, class? Alliteration. Both initial, meaning all those B sounds, and internal, 
as in battered hearse. And what is weird and cannot be accidental is that the grandmother's traveling case was described in a similar manner, her big black valise. Interesting. One of the men is a, quote, fat boy in black trousers and a red sweatshirt with a silver stallion on it. The other has on khaki pants and a gray hat pulled low. The third is the driver and the leader in silver-rimmed spectacles and no shirt at all. He had on jeans that were too tight for him and was holding a black hat and a gun. A clever reader might say his pants don't fit him, so they are a misfit. Get it? Granny sure does. As the men began ordering the family around and the dark woods gape behind them like an open mouth, the grandmother takes us all there in her final fatal coup de grace. She shrieks and says, you're the misfit. Man, you can almost see why she drives her family nuts. I mean, think about how much of this is actually her fault. The misplaced house, the lie about the treasure, the hidden cat, and now this. Yes, ma'am, the man says, smiling slightly as if he were pleased, in spite of himself, to be known. But it would have been better for all of you, lady, if you hadn't have recognized me. Bailey then curses at the grandmother, using a word so bad that it shocks even his kids. Grandma then pulls the old, you wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? And whips out a perfect lace handkerchief and dabs her eyes. The misfit makes a hole in the ground with the point of his shoe and then covers it back up. Digging a grave much? I would hate to have to, he says. Then the grandmother says almost screaming, listen, I know you're a good man. You don't look a bit like you have common blood. I know you must come from nice people. Why? Because he's white? Because he wears glasses and calls you ma'am? Interestingly, the misfit affirms her assumptions and says he comes from the finest people in the world and smiles to show her he has a row of strong white teeth, a mark of financial stability back in the day. Then very politely, the misfit asks Bailey and his son to step into the woods with one of the other men. O'Connor has an uncanny ability to scare the crap out of her readers without saying much of anything. The language here is flat and matter-of-fact, but danger is crackling all through it. Bailey and his mother regress, and he calls her mama, and she calls him Bailey boy, and it's heartbreaking. But O'Connor just keeps moving us mercilessly through this brutal scene. After the two gunshots are heard in the woods, one of the men returns with Bailey's shirt, a florid yellow number covered with blue parrots, and the misfit puts it on, which makes you wonder if this makes him sort of the grandmother's son now. Is that a leap? Just think about that as I continue. I never was a bad boy that I remember of, the misfit says, but somewhere along the line, I done something wrong and got sent to the penitentiary. I was buried alive. The grandmother keeps responding with, you should pray. You're a good man. Jesus would help you. And he says, I don't want no help. I'm doing all right by myself. I found out that the crime don't matter. You can do one thing or you can do another. Kill a man or take a tire off his car because sooner or later, you're going to forget what it was you done and just be punished for it. Meanwhile, the other men take the mother, the baby, and the little girl off to the woods 
leaving the grandmother alone with the misfit. She finds herself saying, Jesus, Jesus, which sounds like she is praying, but also kind of sounds like she's cursing. The misfit picks up the thread. Yes, ma'am. Jesus thrown everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he hadn't committed any crime, and they could prove I had committed one because they had the papers on me. Of course, they never shown me any papers. I call myself the misfit because I can't make what all I'd done wrong fit all I'd gone through in punishment. Does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap and another ain't punished at all? Okay, so what I just read is a distillation of a longer story the misfit tells of his life about going to prison, but maybe not for a crime he committed. And honestly, it is really confusing. Even though I cut it, and I'm using my emphasis voice that you've come to know and love, please say you have, still, you may be feeling a bit befuddled. The takeaway here is that the misfit is getting really deep really fast and asking essential questions about the nature of good and evil and the balance of crime and punishment. And this is all way over the grandmother's head. She just keeps saying the same things. You've got some good blood. You wouldn't shoot a lady. You come from nice people. Jesus saves, pray, and finally, I'll give you all my money. And the misfit says, lady, there was never a body that give the undertaker a tip. After two more pistol reports from the woods, the misfit says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. Um, what? So I don't know about you, but when I imagine that there are no consequences because God is not real and Jesus is just a story, I imagine things like sleeping in on Sunday. And if life is short, shouldn't you plan trips to Paris and quit your boring office job, things like that? Murder and mayhem are not on my bucket list, but maybe that's just me. Anyway, why for the misfit is there, quote, no pleasure but meanness? Maybe it is simply proof that he is a sociopath, but it doesn't seem like he is actually having any fun, and the last line of the story, which we will get to in a minute, seems to support this. Perhaps he is angry with God and angrier still with Jesus for throwing everything off balance. So to get back at him, he plays the devil, and his sick pleasure is in doing exactly what God does not wish him to do. The grandmother's family is annoying and rude, sure, but they didn't deserve to die. Too bad, the misfit seems to be saying, because he didn't deserve what happened to him either. The poor addled grandmother, whose entire family is now dead in the woods, says maybe, maybe he didn't raise the dead, and sinks into the dirt. And the misfit winds himself up into an almost desperate state. I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't. I wish I'd have been there. It ain't right I wasn't there, because if I'd have been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, if I'd have been there, I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am now. Did you hear that? Regret? Remorse? A plea for God's grace? He wants proof, and who can blame him? Faith can be so stinking hard. 
but he is right there, right there, so close he can feel God's gracious breath fogging up his glasses. Listen to what happens next. Quote, his voice seemed about to crack, and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry, and she murmured, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. And she reaches out and touches him on the shoulder. This, my friends, is grace. Her head clears because she is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God, and that Spirit is speaking through her. A real live miracle is taking place on this dusty Georgia road, taking place for a most unlikely recipient, a murdering sociopath. This is God Almighty telling this awful, awful man that he loves him and therefore, by extension, forgives him. And what does the misfit do? Quote, the misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Then he put his gun on the ground and took off his glasses and began to clean them. He doesn't want undeserved love and mercy any more than he wanted to be punished for a crime he didn't commit. Oh, and nice touch with the snake, Flannery. This fellow does seem to have a little more than a little of the devil in him. The grandmother, meanwhile, lies in a puddle of blood with her face smiling up at a cloudless sky. One of the other guys says, she was a talker. And the misfit says, my very favorite line of the whole story, and for sure a killer, pardon the pun, cocktail party takeaway. She would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. What does this mean? It means that the grandmother, a silly, shallow, racist, religious hypocrite, which makes her, in O'Connor's worldview, just as much of a grotesque as the criminal, is, in the end, filled with the grace of God and redeemed, saved, heaven-bound. And who made this happen? The misfit. So instead of her saving him, he saves her. Further, I would assert that O'Connor is deliberately coupling together the grandmother and the misfit and forcing us to wonder, are they both misfits? Then one of the other guys says, some fun. And the misfit delivers the final line of the story. Shut up, Bobby Lee. It's no real pleasure in life. It's fascinating that in the end, we actually feel a little badly for the guy and maybe we wish he could have been redeemed. He is simply more interesting than the grandmother, just as Satan is the most interesting character in John Milton's Paradise Lost. Frankly, I even relate more to the misfit than to the grandmother. We didn't really care if God saved the grandmother, did we? But that's the nature of God's grace. It works in mysterious ways. And that is what bedevils the misfit. He longs for clarity, and in the absence of it, embraces chaos. Maybe O'Connor is saying, that is why the world is the way it is. If we all just had a little more faith, if we just let ourselves die a little and accepted God's grace. Okay, I will stop before someone accuses me of turning this into God's power hour. This story, especially the flat tone O'Connor uses to depict the murder of an entire family, captures the many incongruities of the 20th century South, a place of great courtesy, and great violence, 
a grotesque landscape we are at once disgusted by and drawn to, a place populated by the isolated, the defeated, and the ignorant, a people for whom, according to William Faulkner, the past is not even past, which allows for nostalgia to crowd out and distort reality. It is the perfect place for a story about a man who can't square his head around the incongruities of grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, divine love and forgiveness. If you enjoyed this episode of Cocktail Party Takeaways, please show your love, rate it, like it, download it, leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. And let's get social. Follow me on Twitter at AnnRochelle67. That's A-N-N-E-R-O-C-H-E-L-L 67. AnnRochelle.com is where you can go for more information about me or about the podcast. That's Ann with an E, Rochelle without. And please, if you like cocktail party takeaways, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a stranger at the grocery store. Cocktail Party Takeaways is produced by Gus Kenningsmark with original music by Gus Kenningsmark. Cover art by Stuart Key. Cheers, and let's all read more.